0: 大家好, I'm Bala from Bala Simple Chinese School. If you are a beginner, intermediate, advanced, looking for HSK study, business Chinese, or simply want to improve your everyday communication, I'm the teacher for you. Come and join me for a free trail class at Bala Simple Chinese School. Craig here. Welcome back to season four of Tell Craig Your Story. I've taken a couple of months off. We're going to talk about that in the later podcast. I've been to the US and Canada, and we've got some really exciting podcasts to come. Today, we'll be speaking to Mitch Hughes. Now, Mitch is most recognized for being the sports presenter and the sports journalist for MBN News TV in Newcastle, Australia. Now, after 24 years of working with MBN, Mitch decided to hang up his boots and we take a deep dive into his sports journalism and the amazing people that he's met and interviewed in his career. And Mitch is now currently working with the city council as a media advisor. But before we go, please go to our website where we're at Podbean. Tell Craig Your Story at Podbean.com. You can find us at tell Craig Your Story. We also have a YouTube account, make sure you're subscribing to get all the latest updates and make sure you're giving us a like. We also have VK for our Russian listeners and WeChat for our Chinese listeners. Alright, here we go. This is my chat with Mitch Hughes on Tell Craig Your Story Podcast. Hi Mitch, how are you going tonight?
1: Good, mate. How are you?
0: Good, thank you. Tell us a bit about what you're doing now. You have a new job after a very long career with MBN. So tell us what you're doing right now.
1: So I'm into my fourth week uh, as a media advisor with the city of Newcastle, probably better known as Newcastle Council. It's the media and stakeholder relations team. It's essentially the other side of the fence as people in media, one or the other, essentially these days, you're either a journalist uh, or you're in media relations. So for me, it was just all about at 45, I definitely was ready for a change three and a half year old twin boys, uh, Harvey and Harrison. And my wife's a, a palliative care doctor. And we were just unfortunately finding that since the boys had been born, you know, she might leave for work at seven o'clock in the morning. And I was getting home from work at eight o'clock at night. And we just weren't having any time together as a family. And I was just missing so much, you know, getting home at 7.45, you, you miss, you know, after school, dinner, uh, bath time and all that sort of stuff. And then when yeah. you get home, you see the boys for about 10 minutes and then uh, they were in bed and it hit home pretty hard when uh, Laura said to me one day, when we dropped the kids at school, at uh, childcare, she turned to me and she said, oh, boys, say goodbye to daddy. Say you'll see him tomorrow. And it was like 20 past eight in the morning. So oh dear, <laughs> it was a pretty, pretty big shock to think, yeah, you're you about to spend the next like 22 hours not seeing them. So my father, who you knew, he passed away just on two years, just over two years ago now. And. Yeah, one of Great the cameramen guy. Yeah, one of the cameramen at work who was a bit older, who was probably in his 50s, uh, when I was talking about dad, he just said the thing that always stuck out to him was that the thing that you think of when somebody passes away is what you'd like to get back is time. So, you know, mm. you can't replace time. So if you didn't spend enough time with that person, you know, you wish you could have spent more. And dad definitely put, you know, time into us. You know, he coached you know cricket teams and football soccer teams and he took us to karate and he took us to uh, camping and surfing and fishing and taught us how to play golf and you just think back and think you know the memories you've got are worth so much more than if your dad ever you know bought you a car or bought you a surfboard or something like that so knowing that was the case and knowing that my boys were about you know two and a half at that stage I just started looking for another job and um, Mm. yeah the council jobs just it's in in this day and age it's just a lot more manageable it's monday to friday it's nine to five you know there's work from home opportunities if the kids are sick there's just so much more work-life balance and i think after 20 whatever it was three years 24 years of working in the media which is a little bit more go 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 been a nice change and i'm I'm still getting used to it though it's really hard i kind of describe it as being like the uh the captain of you know like a premier league football team like manchester united to going to being the water boy for like a fourth to be, or Wrexham, <laughs> or something like that. So
0: right, yes.
1: yeah, at this stage, I'm, uh, I'm still learning how to not be the boss and how to not be, you know, the face of everything and how to not be the main person in my department and just actually learning how to ask questions again and how to learn, I guess. Yeah, yeah. learning how to learning how to learn because I pretty much knew everything where, where I was. So yeah, that's been a big, uh, big change.
0: That's a good thing for you and your personal career, right? learning new things, of course.
1: Absolutely it is interesting seeing things from the other point of view like I'm a I'm a pretty proud passionate you know novocastrian for people watching that don't know what a novocastrian is obviously they might because craig's originally from here but yeah basically people from newcastle it's a pretty special place and you know people that are from here are passionate about the place and it's nice to work somewhere where you actually get behind the scenes to see what projects are happening and uh, Mm. you know there are things going on that i'm i'm sort of looking at from behind the scenes and you know they're they're upgrading the newcastle ocean baths they're upgrading the newcastle art gallery they're You know, they're doing all these really nice projects around the city and I get to be part of publicising those. So it is a very big change from being a journalist, but at least I feel like I'm still involved in things that I'm passionate about.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And just talking about going back to Newcastle and how every time I go back there, it just seems to have something better, especially in in town, in the city, the V8 supercars. supercars.
1: Yeah, absolutely. You might remember there's an old building in town that kind of looks like a McDonald's ice cream cone that was the Mm. old council building. It's now a five star hotel with a uh, rooftop restaurant that's um, got panoramic views of the city. Um, it's a crossroad from civic Park, so it's got these beautiful views of like the really nice park with the fountain they've redone all the facade on town hall four-star hotels lined up along the street you know the honeysuckle development is massive and the city's definitely changing and um, yeah probably not as fast as some people would like in terms of you know more public transport and you know another bigger entertainment center and stuff like that but you know things are gradually happening and um and you know definitely happy to be part of all that sort of stuff and you know being still involved
0: great to hear so before that you were the face like every time we used to sit sit down for dinner and (laughs) i wanted to know about the newcastle knights or the cricket scores that was you (laughs) yeah (laughs) so tell us you told us about the decision for leaving but i saw the video of your last your sign off that as they said how difficult was that for you? Like you're with your family, you're getting all this praise. So tell us a little bit about that day.
1: Or yeah, not. it was it was really emotional actually. And it's uh it's interesting because just today I was looking at the Newcastle Herald website for another story that related to Newcastle Council. They've actually got the article that I did with the Herald about leaving uh on their front page at the moment, which is a couple wow. of weeks after it went to into print, but but they also have the video of my last night and I just I don't know, I was just scrolling and I just end up playing it just to have a look and, yeah, it still gives me a little, you know, well up sort of moment. Yeah, it was really emotional because that 23 years, I went from being a 21-year-old, I walked in there two weeks after I turned 21 to be, uh, to have my first shift as an editor mm-hmm. and from 21 years old, uh, you know, being a four-hour-a-week editor of, of tape footage, uh, mm. you know, to, to go from that in 1999 to – You know, journalist in 2004, uh, moved to the Gold Coast and Byron Bay for two years, came back and then just kept being in the right place at the right time, got promoted to uh, doing extra duties, uh, extra responsibilities as a news reporter. And then the sport reporter. And it was just, yeah, again, Jim Callinan, who was the uh, long serving weekend Mm. sports anchor. Uh, jim got a job in sydney in 2011 and i was chosen to take over the weekend gig right uh, that led me to be friday to tuesday and uh reading the bulletin on the saturday and sunday night and then Mike bit the legendary anchor was monday to friday and uh in 2014 late 2014 he announced he was retiring and uh yeah so i took over from him in early 2015 yeah i mean that's i think it was because I felt like I'd grown up there, you know, like you go from being 21 yeah. when you first walk in to being 45 when you walk out. <laughs> it's, uh, it's a massive shift. And, and, you know, like the the friends I've made there, The even like there was a cameraman that was there who was, when I was 21, he was probably 45. And unfortunately, he ended up getting cancer and, and he died. And they named an award after him and everything. But like he was, I was so close to him when I was there that I used to call him dad, you know, nicknamed him yeah, dad. Yeah, right. he it was like a second dad to me. And yeah, just to have someone like that and to leave behind that life, uh, it's a pretty overwhelming feeling. And um, But it was amazing. Like I had a farewell with the current work colleagues on the Friday night. And then I had a farewell with all of my former colleagues on the saturday and it was just right. great to catch up with so many old friends who i'm still friends with and it was just so nice to talk to people and realize that i've made these friends and they're still in newcastle most of them and we're still yeah. catching up and you know but it's such an amazing industry like i've now got friends who are journalists in adelaide or cairns or cameramen right. in cameramen in melbourne or cam, you know journalists in melbourne or you know, they've moved on to do PR in something else. Like, honestly, that was one of my selling points for trying to get another job was that, you know, the contacts I've got extend yes. the length and breadth of, of New South Wales, Sydney, Melbourne, Brisbane, Perth, Adelaide. And, you know, even one of my best mates who we went to uni together, he's the um, the news director of SBS World News in Sydney now. And wow. of, But he's just a mate. Like I used to, yeah. fly to fly to London and sleep on his couch because we were mates at NBN and he was a sport reporter <laughs> as well. So
0: yeah it's it. just
1: it's an incredible industry and um it's definitely one that has a lot of camaraderie when you're in the trenches with people and when you're when you're working hard and and you know getting paid not much yeah um at the time so yeah it's definitely a, an industry that's created a lot of lifelong connections and stuff like that and not just with the the cameramen and the journos um with the athletes as well like i've ended up yes. becoming close with you know like it was amazing to me just I keep describing it as this, you know, this little kid from Katara. I announced I was leaving and then it started getting put in newspapers and magazines and all that sort of stuff and on air. And I was getting text messages from, you know, a guy that used to play in the English Premier League who I'd interviewed a few times, who was like, sad to see you go, always a great dude. A guy that now works for FIFA, who's in Switzerland sent me a message saying always a pleasure. And I just got so many amazing messages from people and so much amazing feedback. It was so special to to do that. But also, honestly, the nicest thing for me has been stepping away from such a high profile role, knowing I was doing it for the right reason. I'm mm. I'm I'm not regretting it. Like I'm not sitting yes. here thinking I miss yes. talking to the Newcastle Knights, the Newcastle Jets, Cricket Australia, you know, cricket New South Wales every day, Golf New South Wales, all this sort of stuff. I fully, thoroughly enjoyed everything I did, but I'm fully happily home for dinner every night and yes. you know, take the boys to school every day and pick them up every day. And yeah, I mean, even this, like this Newcastle Jets jersey is literally signed by the entire squad. They gave wow. it to me on um, they on. gave it to me on my final day. And I also have a Newcastle Knights one that they gave to me on my final day. Wow. and the whole the whole team in that video on the on the news, that was them all thank you thanking me and saying goodbye. So yeah, it's just yeah, it was incredible. And um and yeah to think about how much of a life part of my life it was um yeah it was very emotional very overwhelming and to have my boys and my wife there on the on the yeah. set it, it was um it was huge and you know as i said some of those people are really really close like natasha who was sitting there's like a big sister to me the woman yes. that was reading the news so yeah and has been she's mentored me since i was like 24 so it's just amazing to sit there at 45 and feel like you know well there was just a friend saying goodbye well not goodbye that was the hardest thing to i wasn't saying goodbye to everyone i was just saying Thank yes. you. So. See, yes.
0: See you later. <laughs>
1: yeah, yeah, exactly. See you soon. Yeah.
0: <laughs> yes. While you were talking about that, I just wanted to ask, like, you said Mike bit He seemed to be like the person that when I was growing up, he was the man for the sports. And then I used to play baseball, so I played against him. Was there any sort of pressure to take his spot in, in the news or was he
1: helpful? How, tell us a little bit about that. Yeah, Rabs was incredible. Like as a as a guy, there's that old saying, you know, never meet your heroes. Absolutely, I believe that is true 50% of the time, and I believe it's you know the exact opposite the other 50% of the time. I think there are some people I've met who I'm like, oh, I really shouldn't have ruined my image of who you were. Yes, yes. But Mike, 100%, is not like that at all. He was supportive to the point where when I announced I was leaving and it it Mm. popped up on Facebook Mike Rabitt and his wife Susan were traveling through Europe and Susan jumped on and said hi Michi it's Susan Um, Mike just wanted to say congratulations on everything you did what a great effort Mm. so proud of you and he can't wait to see you when he gets home and it was just you know it was just lovely and and yeah like when Mike announced his retirement There was no pressure from him. He never thought you were trying to steal his job. He never Mm. thought that you were putting pressure on him. It was always a team camaraderie situation. Uh, There was definitely pressure from management when I took over from him in terms of watching the ratings and worrying that him leaving was going to have a huge impact on ratings, but it never really did.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And while we're on the topic too, uh, the Knights, fortunate they got beat. Uh, Last weekend, but what a run. Some were doubters halfway through the season uh, where they were on the table, but even though they didn't win the grand final, what a great end to their season.
1: Yeah, it was, and it reflects on the city too just in terms of how much people wanted something to cheer about because, you know, 2001, the last time the Knights won, the Knights men won a grand final. I think it was something like twenty. 12, 13, 14 around there when Wayne Bennett was coaching that they got within one game of the grand final. Got beat by the Roosters, I think, in the preliminary final. But, yeah, just – and especially, like, being over there a lot and just knowing that it's actually a really good group. Like, the the crop at the moment, like, you know, there's been some times when you get over there and you don't know whether or not it feels like it's got any real – team sort of camaraderie and everything like this, but the current group really does seem like it's actually quite strong, is a is a solid team unit. So it was nice to see them turn those results around and actually, you know, put 10 in a row on the board and look at the crowds, like three, yes. four weeks to go. And they had sell, sell that crowds for regular season games and then, you know, for a semi-final. So, yeah, disappointing they couldn't go any further, but, um, you know, fingers crossed, I guess it just gives momentum to go into next season and they actually can build on it.
0: Absolutely. yeah. All the best for the night. So let's go back into your history. You were born at the Marta Hospital, I do recall. And funnily enough, I was also born in the, the Martyr Hospital as well. So growing up in Wall's End, grew up No, in.
1: so mum and dad were both Walls End. They were both mm. born and raised in Walls End. And then I don't know why, but they both just had this idea when they got married that they just wanted to move out of Walls End. Everyone else stayed. All of mum's side of the family stayed and my dad's parents stayed. But yeah, mum and dad wanted to move out. So they bought a terrace in Cook's Hill in about 1971 or two. And they lived there for about five or six years uh, in their 20s. And then, yeah, I think dad was about 28. uh, No, sorry. Mum was 28. Dad was 29. Uh, when they had me in 1978 so -hmm. and we lived there for about three and a half four years Uh, bro Mm -hmm. my brother Brody uh, was born in uh, 1980 and then I think when he was about 18 months old we moved to Katara South yeah I think the reason we both ended up playing sports in Wall's End especially cricket was more because of the connection with the family just because my grandfather was obviously heavily involved in sports in walls end yeah i think just pop you know that was just him uh, because walls had such a good cricket program and still does yeah that was just his probably his encouragement and um yeah so when we both i think turned 10 we got out to or 10 or 11 we both got out to walls end but yeah born and raised uh katara from probably four through to about 22 until i Mm. moved to england to move to england so
0: yeah
1: um, yeah, so no, Katara South was um, yeah, junior football and and but yeah, cricket was uh, cricket was Wall's End. Wall's End. Walls End.
0: Even going back further, our grandfathers were, as well, to I would say actually pretty famous names in the Walls End history of soccer. I know my grandfather, but he had the, the most consecutive wins, nine or ten year period undefeated. So I don't know if that still stands the test of time, but he was very, very proud of that always talk highly of your grandfather as well so tell a little bit about that your your grandfather as well mr frame
1: yeah so pop was a bit of a sporting freak to be honest um, mm. growing up he was just uh, he was definitely someone that not only could play but wanted to teach you how to play as well pop ended up pop was actually an incredibly good footballer pop played a couple of b internationals for australia yeah, um, right wow he played against a couple of uh, small nations that weren't classified as A-nation. So I think it was like when they played friendlies against, you know, let's like, say Vanuatu or someone like that. Mm. Uh, he played for New South Wales a bunch of times. Johnny Warren, the famous football commentator, um, actually signed a book for my uncle once that said, to my childhood hero, Bob Frame, my favourite player. So which was just, <laughs> we were blown away. <laughs> and oh, then uh, unfortunately, Johnny passed away, died from uh, cancer before we got a chance because when I started getting a bit of a profile in media, I always had this dream of meeting Johnny Warren and reintroducing mm. him to, to Pop. But then, unfortunately, Johnny passed away before I got that chance. But um, oh. but then, yeah, Pop also, um, I think the list was pretty extensive. He played A-grade tennis. He played cricket for Newcastle. Played first grade for Walls End. Mm. He played top-grade table tennis just he played golden oldies for australia when he was like 50 or something like that didn't realize he had a broken hip and um persevered with that for two and a half years because he was mad and ended up becoming a a, a accredited coach and ended up coaching i think i saw some newspaper clippings at my nan's house once that said he coached vanuatu uh at one stage he did um a coaching clinic for the like a sorry coaching program for for the country of vanuatu and uh yeah, he coached all over Newcastle and um, within New South Wales. And yeah, apparently, when he was probably in his early twenties, he was offered a contract at a Scottish side in the Scottish League. The only thing that stopped him was that he had, I think, my mum had been born by then, right? Because his father and mother were both Scottish, and uh, but they'd moved, they'd come over on a boat, and he was born in Australia, so he was uh, like had australian citizenship but his parents both had scottish citizenship obviously and uh yes yeah he was contacted by a scottish club and uh yeah he had to weigh up that decision do i move to scotland and go and play football over there or do i stay here in australia because i think he had a business at that stage a service station in walls and yeah i think it was just this big decision and in the end he, he he stuck and and decided to stay in uh in newcastle so mm. for me i guess that He's pretty lucky because it means I still exist. But, but yeah, gave up that opportunity. But I guess, you know, professional football in Australia wasn't really a thing, no. you know, in the 50s. And, you know, in the end, I think he was still able to play his football, play. So, yeah, uh, just an unbelievable sports person and, and you know, practice and perseverance. Yeah, I think probably the biggest compliment he ever gave me. He didn't give much away, Pop, but he was drunk, and, <laughs> drunk once. And he said to me, he'd had about seven middies. And he said to me once that he thought if I'd have, been able to persevere with football soccer that i would have been much better than he ever was and i just thought oh wow thanks pop so a big call yes yeah, so i didn't know whether he was drunk or just because he was in front <laughs> of people and he was trying to show off about his grandson but um mm. yeah i i never quite reached his heights played a bit of first grade premier league sort of uh, far north coast but never never wow. played anything higher than that yeah played some uh, decent stuff but yeah again work and uni and everything else got in the way so but yeah no he was he was a legend pop and he was very committed to trying to help us and you know coach my football teams and coach my brothers and you know would give advice for cricket and you know would take you out playing golf and stuff like that so yeah he was yeah. uh yeah he was a legend pop
0: it just seemed to be the normal thing uh, you'd be playing all these different types of sports i think it's it may have gone away a bit now so with kids that they want to play computer games and, you know, they want to play their iPad a bit more, but uh, soccer, cricket, uh, the girls that play netball, you know, just whatever sort of sport you could play, you, well, at least with my family and with your family, we were doing it, right?
1: <laughs> mm, absolutely and that's all we pretty much did i mean if yeah. we went to our, our you know our other grandfather grandfather uh, pop hughes's house that's all you did you, s- you spent all the day in the backyard played cricket played you know rugby league rugby union soccer golf tennis badminton whatever we could play we played it so um yeah yeah there wasn't a lot of time i guess it's funny because yeah like We probably could have watched TV for six hours and Pop wouldn't have cared, but we just didn't. We just liked being in the backyard. So, But it helped me, I guess, having a brother who was similar age and similar skill and, you know, we both wanted to do all those sort of things. So, yeah, it it definitely helped that it was the two of us and we could do those things together. Yeah. Who were your sporting heroes at that time? It's interesting, you know, because I guess growing up we didn't really have – people in football soccer that we actually knew in in that sense because we didn't really have much of a league in the 80s and 90s you didn't really know people as much I mean you kind of only really knew who Pele was and who Maradona Mm. was and that sort of stuff you didn't really you didn't really know too many people so to be honest as a teenager I probably didn't really have sporting heroes as such. Maybe. Merv Hughes, because his last name was Hughes. (laughs) Yeah. But to be honest, my first sporting real, like, heroes was, I think I turned about 14. What was that? 92, 93. So probably about 15. uh, An auntie of mine gave me uh, a magazine when Michael Jordan retired. And for some reason... I just became obsessed with the NBA and the Chicago Bulls became my team. My brother mm. became obsessed with the Utah Jazz. So that was convenient because for the next four or five years, it was just the yes. Bulls and the Jazz. Yes. And we just loved it. We lived and breathed it. We got a hoop in the backyard. We had, you know, hoops at school. We had hoops. We played basketball two, three nights a week. And oh, there you um, go. I think the sporting heroes kind of changed from the traditional rugby league cricket soccer because I probably liked the Balmain Tigers when I was, you know, 10, 11, 12, because I was the Katara Tigers, so I picked the Balmain Tigers. Uh, yes, yes,
0: yes, yes.
1: Again, not really sort of obsessed with it, liked watching it, but then all of a sudden, yeah, it got to like 13, 14, 15, and basketball just absolutely took over. Uh-huh. And then probably towards a little bit like 17, the Premier League took off in 92, 93, and I think I was – pretty heavily keen on the Premier League after that too, just because at that stage, I think that was the era of the you know the David Beckhams and the Michael Owen and the Premier League really took off as a as a massive vehicle for entertainment. And in Australia you'd get an hour highlight show on ABC every Tuesday night yes. or Monday night or something and you know you only had four stations to choose from, so uh, that was pretty much all that was on. but um can't really say there was anyone that I would have thought, oh, Until Jordan, I had his posters on the wall and all that sort of stuff. I think in those days it felt a bit more accessible too. Like the New South Wales cricket team used to play the West Indian cricket team in Newcastle every year when we were at school. We wagged school a few times to go and watch the game at number one sports ground.
0: Yeah.
1: You'd stand there and get the autograph of Glenn McGrath, Steve Waugh, Mark Waugh, um, you know, you name it. They were all playing for Australia at the time. So it kind of didn't feel like they were that like, you know, they weren't these removed people. Whereas these days, it feels like it's impossible to get to anybody because they're such celebrities and high profile and that sort of stuff. So ultimately, having said that, I did meet David Beckham and he is incredibly lovely. I got the chance to talk to him for good sort of 15 minutes. And he was definitely in the category of don't meet your heroes. He was in the very positively do meet your heroes because he uh, he was awesome. And Couldn't have been nicer. He was at a charity fundraiser for the Hunter Medical Research Foundation and he was interested in what was going on. He was polite to anyone who asked him a question. He gave myself and my colleague 15 minutes of his time and I probably more adopted them later on. Like, you know, I love the fact that Mark Richards was from Newcastle and he was the world surfing champion. You know, I love the fact that. Craig Johnston was from Newcastle, from Lake Macquarie, and he became, you know, a household name. Actually became friends with Craig and ended up having oh. a drink with him. And yeah, he used to catch up with him for a beer when he'd come home to Newcastle, and we'd play in the celebrity golf classic with Jack Newton every year. And oh, nice, um, nice. Yeah. So it was, yeah, definitely, again, through the job, I've definitely had some doors open to me that were just, as a little kid growing up in Qatar, it was just incredible. The amount of times I'd send my dad a photo and just be like, Dad, I met Craig Johnston, or Dad, I met, you know, <laughs> Darren Beanman, the jockey, or Dad, I mean, yeah. you know, this horse trainer, or I'd take a photo with a famous horse or something and, you know, Dad would just be shaking his head sort of <laughs> like, oh, mate, living, living out his fantasies for him as well.
0: Yes, absolutely.
1: When it was David Beckham,
0: was that the time where Tinkler brought him out to play Newcastle?
1: Yeah, so I got chosen uh, a few times through the job to be an ambassador for the city of Newcastle when sporting things happened. Amazing. And, and so when the LA Galaxy came to town, I hosted a few functions on behalf of the HMRI and they were sponsoring the game. Or oh, that, mm. sorry, they were the shirt sponsor who was getting funds from the game. I was invited to the Welcome to Newcastle gathering, I guess you'd call it. The entire Galaxy team was there. So Landon Donovan as well, the famous at the time American captain. But it was mainly because uh, a guy named Michael Bridges, who actually played with Harry Kuehl and Mark Viduka in the Premier mm. League, Yes. settled. He settled in Newcastle after he played uh, for the Jets in the A-League and I actually ended up becoming friends with Bridgie because he owned a bar on Derby Street and Newcastle being Newcastle, if you've got half a profile, everyone tends to meet everybody. Yeah, Michael Bridges <laughs> just became someone that I got to know and I'd go for drinks at his pub and, or his bar because I knew him when the function was on. I was able to say to Michael Bridges, Bridgie, how well do you know Beckham? He said, "Oh, we played England under-21s together." And I said, "Oh, you've got to go and get him, mate. I'd love to meet him." And wow. uh, yeah, he went over and grabbed him and just said, "Oh, there's a couple of people that really want to meet him, uh, meet you." Yeah, Michael went over and grabbed him and uh, brought him over. And yeah, Kate and I got to got to meet him. And um, same thing happened. Uh, Newcastle hosted the Asian one, uh, some of the games in the Asian Cup in mm. 20 early 2015. And, again, I was made an ambassador for the city of Newcastle. Yeah, got to meet the Socceroos through that, Tim Cahill and and uh, the, the crew at the time in 2015 that ended up winning the tournament. So, yeah, it was uh, it was very special. And, and yeah, got to go to, funnily enough, got to go to the Walls End Fair and try and drum up some publicity for the uh, the Asian <laughs> Cup by talking on oh. stage in front of people. So. Come on, yeah. the Walls End
0: Fair. Damn, I yeah.
1: missed that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Your co worker she was the first female sports reporter on MBN. Yeah, so Kate was the first female sport presenter on NBN. Presenter, so,
0: yes.
1: And it's interesting because as much as – and it was an amazing achievement and, and she deserves all the credit in the world, but it's interesting because it wasn't necessarily a bias at the time against a female because of being a female. It was actually mm. the reason they were always giving was logistics because in order to get – people on air for the news, to put everybody on air, you have an hour and 15 minutes for female makeup and you have about 25 minutes to 30 minutes of male makeup. So the the thing was the schedule was worked out always because the sport presenter was a man. So the thing was you had to be in the chair to pre-record and do everything you had to do by 5 o'clock. So you had to be in the makeup chair at 430 30 the problem was, in order to fit Kate in, which is what they did eventually, and that's what they always should have done. But yeah. they end up having to move the makeup times by half an hour, so everybody had to move. Which in the end wasn't a huge imposition on anybody, but no. it, it was just something that in the past they tried to sort of say, look, makeup it won't happen. But Kate was just the right person for the job. She, uh, I've never met anybody who knew so much about so much that I just you know was always flabbergasted like she was the amount of time she'd be up at you know two in the morning watching Chelsea play in the Champions League and you know she'd get to work <laughs> and, and I'd be like you don't look like you slept much she's like oh Chelsea played in the Champions League at two o'clock so I got up and, <laughs> yeah, and she's got a son uh, Roman who I think he's about eight now eight or nine and he is an incredibly good footballer and he is incredibly obsessed with football yeah they get up together and watch a lot of things together so yeah kate was amazing she was she was definitely she was right place right time as well because she was in the mix and then uh, the person who was at the time the second in charge, he left to move to Sydney. Yeah, we we pushed for it, and uh, and it became a reality. And yeah, she uh, she absolutely was just a revelation, and and is proof that for all of the so often in in me covering sport, I would always get this negative voice telling me, don't do female sport, don't cover female sport. You know, what a waste of time. It's this and that. And I'd always say rubbish you know that this is crap you know and they always say oh the 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 level's not very good and I'd say look it's chicken and the egg if you don't give women the facilities the time to practice the money the exposure they're never going to get any better so let's give them the exposure and let's see what happens so we but what the proof is is that the more we gave the like female teams and sports and individuals publicity the more people would reach out to us and say, "Oh, how amazing is that Rhianna Nifflin, who's the world cliff diving champion, and she's won it six years in a row? How incredible is that Lauren Parker, who's the world champion Paralympic cyclist?" And you know all this sort of stuff. Yeah. But since Kate became a sport reporter and a sport presenter, the amount of times when people want her to be the person who hosts their function, she—you could clone her—and she still couldn't host enough functions in in newcastle she's just that good and that does that many so yeah it took a long time but when they finally got there they definitely picked the right person and she um yeah she grabbed it with both hands and she ended up leaving in the end for the same sort of reasons as me just that she's got a daughter both in primary school and i think it was just you just realized that you know she was working uh tuesday to saturday i was working sunday to thursday you just started missing so much stuff and um and yeah for her she moved into PR as well, but she's still so heavily involved in. She's on the board of Newcastle Cricket. You know, she's oh wow, she's, she's heavily involved and she's she's just amazing at what she does. So yeah, I couldn't have been happier to have her as the person I worked with very closely for, oh god, like fourteen years. So yeah, yes. absolutely.
0: So uh, also, our connection is, and you told me before that you actually did karate with my father.
1: I did. Yes, that was. No,
0: how did that all come about? How did you go from basketball and cricket to karate?
1: Well, this all happened before that. Oh, there so you go. I was probably oh, I I was probably only 10, 11, something like that. And I think my mm. dad thought that I was just built like a pencil and wanted to make sure I might have been able to defend <laughs> myself. And I think dad was a fairly tough person and could handle himself and he just knew I was just yeah built like a feather and you know was never going to be able to do that so he tried to get me into this uh, Kempo Khan karate and uh, took two of my mates along and eventually one of the boys that I went with his younger brother came it just so happened that the karate dojo was pretty much 20 meters down the road from my nan's house and uh, my dad used to take us and uh, because of dad's relationship with your dad so johnny as he was called by my dad um yes, yes that that he they were just good friends and and they were you know sweeper and goalkeeper in uh, in a football team together and um yeah uh, dad had a real affection uh, for johnny and i just think it was it was something where dad thought well this is a friend of mine i trust him i'll send mitch along and you know and these friends of mine must have been interested as well and uh, but I think, to be honest, the attraction was, to start off with, Dad used to drive us to Nan's house, and we used to go to the karate, and then we'd go back to Nan's, and she'd give us a bottle of Coke and a Kit Kat, and I think that was the attraction for the three of us <laughs> at the time. Because <laughs> when uh, my mate's parents started taking us, there was no trips to Nan's, so it was only every third week you end up getting the Kit Kat and the Coke. So, uh, right. <laughs> yeah. But I can't say I did it for very long. I think I got to Yellow Belt, and I did my first first session where you actually went and fought against people from other dojos and all that sort of stuff and oh, i think it yes, just yes. scared the crap out of me and i Quite don't think bit. i ever went don't think i ever went back after that yeah i think i went more hardcore into the cricket and the and the soccer and then obviously the basketball after that yeah,
0: absolutely and then you, you you finished high school and you went to the newcastle university F- a film right video editing
1: yes i got an average mark let's say for the uh, hsc i constantly tell people that um i unfortunately discovered sport girls and friends when i was about 16 which was pretty inconvenient timing i think i just enjoyed it too much the freedom of mates getting licenses and you know just having that freedom to go and do whatever you wanted yeah got decent marks in high school and just never really got the mark i needed so no, i did environmental science for six months and hated it and Mm. uh dropped dropped out went and worked with dad for six months and wasn't any good at that and uh then i went back to uni and did arts and when i got into arts i actually started in some fairly simple things like history geography because i was trying to get my marks up to get into journalism I picked film thinking it would be something where you just went and watched movies and you know it'd be easy. Turned out it was the thing that pretty much, it became what at the time was probably my second love and has probably grown to ultimately become my first love. Uh, Discovered film studies and uh, ended up doing, uh, majoring in film studies, but also because of my credits through arts. When I got into communications two years later, uh, I ended up majoring in journalism, history, and film so mm. um and then within the communications degree i was able to do video editing which then led me to get the job at nbn yeah that's how that was sort of my window into it it was learning video editing at university and then that got me the job at um uh so, at nbn
0: so <laughs> did you know anybody there at nbn or was it just like a normal
1: interview okay uh, you come got- on mate it's newcastle how do you think i got the job? <laughs> Friend my, of best, a friend. <laughs> my best female friend from high school, her older brother happened to be the best mate of another mate from school's older brother. And I was kind of in the group with this friend. Oh, actually, the friend ended up being a bit of a name drop here, but um, Ben Melmoth, who played basketball for Australia and was the Newcastle Falcons centre and pirates and all that sort of stuff. So Benny's Benny and I are good friends. Benny's younger brother Adam played for the Pirates eventually as well. He's one of my best mates through that group. This friend of mine, Brooke, her older brother Corey, Corey was best mates with Ben. Ben was the older brother of Adam. Adam and Brooke were two of my best friends. So I knew Corey literally when I got into comms and started doing uh, editing. He just rang me one day and on the landline because it was 1999 and said, uh, or 98 actually, and he said they've got an opening for four hours a week as an editor. Are you interested? Yeah, he taught me the ropes and uh, took me about two months. And then, yeah, they just had a few openings and I just kept getting more and more shifts. And I sort of was able to add on to it. So you start out as an editor four hours a week and then they say, hey, do you want to come down and do auto queue? It's 20 bucks an hour and you do four hours and you can still go to uni. And you're like, yeah, great. And then they're like, do you want to do some graphics? And you're like, yeah, sure, I'll do that. Do you want to do some, you know, captions and type it out? And I'm like, yeah, sure. So I just end up doing every job that they threw at me in, ter- in mm. the whole newsroom. But, yeah, the initial window into the job was definitely friend, a oh, b- brother of a friend.
0: Right. And then 99, it seems like a lifetime ago, there would have been so much changes from then till up until you left. So editing, like, the film, like, doing all the video edits to what they do now, so what were the major differences that you saw in your time?
1: Yeah, well, so 99, NBN was still editing on a form of video called Betacam. So everyone mm. knows everyone knows VHS, but if you're as old as us, you remember that there was a time when videos were either beta or beta, as Americans call it, and VHS. And uh, VHS, yeah. VHS was actually the one that won the sort of video wars to become the one for home video, but Betacam was actually the best video quality for shooting. So if you ever saw a yeah, TV... Right tv news crew they were actually mm. using Betacam, so we were editing on Betacam, and it was these two huge chunky machines probably about oh, probably about 40 centimeters wide and with a mm. tape that was about 25 centimeters wide and you just used to stick that in and you'd edit from machine to machine and that lasted until about 2002 then they moved on to dv cam which was kind of an hd version but we weren't broadcasting in hd so that was still tape to tape and then by 2000 Mm. and i think it was about six or seven they moved on to computer editing for the first time so you know grass valley adobe premiere that sort of Mm. standard editing software these days Um, yes just just the formats where you know timelines were you know you're cutting on a timeline you know you were looking at the video waveform and all that sort of thing so that probably changed, yeah, around 06, 07 for NBN. And then it was only literally probably 2021 where we became, we NBN became fully integrated into the Channel 9 system, which has a program called Avid, which is like a file sharing system where they share all their vision throughout the entire network. And essentially there's no... Uh, They shoot on things now called XD Cam, which is essentially like a high-resolution disc inside a plastic casing. It will shoot and create clips that are kind of like MP4 format. So when you put it into a player, it just dumps it down as if it's like a video file, and then it goes straight onto the computer, and it's just able to be edited like that. So in terms of the quickness, in terms of everything, like go back to 19. 1999 if you knew that you know a guy from newcastle was surfing in a contest in america unless somebody knew somebody that could get you footage there was just no chance of getting it you just knew you weren't mm. going to get that footage unless there was some sort of you know american station that was going to relay it through the bureau of nbn or channel nine right, in, right. in la to sydney it just wasn't going to happen these days turn youtube on there's a program where you just basically download the program and convert it or turn YouTube on. There's a thing called screen capture where you just literally put a box out, hit record, record what's on the screen, dump it down to the system. It's there for you to use. So coverage of sport these days. It's actually probably yeah. the saddest Saddest thing is that if you go back in time to before the internet, everyone relied on TV news because, you know, they just knew if you were going to get footage of something, it was going to be on the TV news. These days surfing new south wales will put out their own video of a contest you know if the contest is on in tahiti they'll have a live stream of a youtube clip going if it's a golf tournament they'll have a live stream you know all these sort of things so the saddest thing is we can in this day and age they can collect so much more vision they can collect so much more information they can give you so much more product but ultimately you can almost find it yourself if you really wanted to so yeah it's yeah. sort of that the, the opportunity is there to provide a lot more content, but it also means that if you're specifically just interested in surfing, you're not going to turn the news on just to look for your favorite surfer because you can find them yourself on the app. Yeah. It's kind of, that was probably my biggest disappointment was that we could pump out so much more content give the viewers so much more. But if they specifically wanted one thing, you know, Knights fans weren't coming to us for necessarily the Knights vision. They're going straight to NRL.com, you know, yeah, Jets, fan, yeah. Jets fans yeah. are going to the A-League website, surfing fans wsl app you know that sort of Mm. thing so i think you know there's still the rusted on viewers but there's also you know that chance that you kind of have to give people something they can't get and that's the hardest thing yeah
0: yes what amazing technology that we live in right so when did you get your first break for being on camera. 2009, was
1: it? <coughs> <clears throat> yeah. So as a journo, when I started in 2004, um, mm. I did a couple of months in Newcastle. Then I moved up to Tweed Heads and I ran a bureau up there for about eight or nine months. And then the rest of the time, it was a Gold Coast bureau with some other journalists.
0: Mitch, can yeah. we get there? I read that your first interview they actually did was with Catherine Britt. Yeah, it also. was. Yep. Yeah. Tell us about that, that.
1: Yeah, so that was interesting. Um, so she... Her manager called the newsroom to say, oh, my my client, I guess, uh, has mm. just recorded a duet with Elton John. And yes. uh, we were kind it. of like, oh, right. And they were like, yeah, she just lives in, I think it was Ellie Barner or something at the time yeah. or Cahyba K- yeah. or something. And I was like, and we were like, oh, and I took the phone call and I went to the chief of staff and said, oh, this has come through. It's a story. And he's gone, do you want to do it? And I hadn't voiced a story yet. I hadn't written a story yet. I'd only gone out with people and I knew the process, but I'd never done it. And he sent me out by myself with a cameraman did the interview wrote the story gave it to the producer and the producer called me over and he said who helped you write this and i said uh, no one and he goes mate <laughs> he said mate that's pretty good and i was just like really and he goes yeah i'm not going to change a word yeah go yeah wow. go, and, go, go and get someone to voice it and he went straight into the news director at the time and said because at the time i'd actually been given the opportunity through the news director the news director had said to me if you because I'd done some camera work as well, and he said, if you want to be a cameraman or you want to be a journalist, I'm going to give you three months. And at the end of that three months, you come and tell me what you want to be and we'll see what openings we've got for you. That mm. was probably three weeks in, and the producer went straight to the news director and said, he writes really well, let's make him a journalist. And That's uh, incredible. And that yeah. was it. So two and a half, so that was late March, early April two thousand and by July I was moving to Tweed Heads to take on um, an office mm. by myself.
0: Yeah, right. And how long did you stay there in Tweed Heads?
1: So that job lasted just on two years. Um, mm. So it was about nine months of the Tweed Bureau, which was based at Cooling Airport, and then they expanded it from one journalist and one cameraman to being three journalists and three cameramen and to yes. be the Gold Coast Bureau. Yeah, I was there from Ju- July... 04 to June, sorry, just under two years, June 2006. So, All right, yeah. Then moved back to Newey, and yeah, moved back to Newcastle. You sort of you you became, you know, you did news, you did sport, you did some producing, you did some mm. chief of staff work. You know, you tried to do everything. Probably around 2007, uh, where the boss at the time said, "Look, go downstairs and just have a go at reading on air. Like, don't it won't be on air." Mm. Uh, but, you know, just have a go, just familiarize yourself with the studio and familiarize yourself with the camera and the auto cue and all that sort of stuff uh, yes. and, and the pedal for the auto queue. And so I did a few of them. And it was probably early 2000, oh, probably early to mid 2008, where mm. we used to do live updates where you would read the update to the camera at 12, 1, 2, 3 o'clock. Oh, yes. They were just a one minute update where you'd be watching, I don't know, Young and the Restless and that <laughs> would come on in the middle of it. <laughs> Um, They're probably still doing Young and the Restless. <laughs> they probably still are. That was probably, I probably did about oh, seven, eight, nine of those. And then it was pretty much late 2008 where the boss came to me and he said, look, I've looked at your tapes. I think you're ready. I got my first gig literally on New Year's Day of 2009. So mm. I was a very good boy on 2008 New Year's Eve and I'm <laughs> yes. in bed at 12.30, Yeah, up the next day and very nervous yes my lovely brother saw the footage of me and i had my hands sitting on the desk because one of my colleagues had said to me look if you get nervous and you get worried about where you are and where your head is and all that sort of stuff just put your hands on the desk and keep yourself like so you know where you are so where your hands are pointing that's where your shoulders should be pointing so my lovely brother called me as soon as the news finished. And here I was thinking I'd get all these phone calls saying, you did it, you did it, you're on TV, you didn't screw up. And my lovely little brother rang me and he said, why did they put your desk on the side of a cliff so you had to hang on to it for dear life? <laughs> oh,
0: dear. Come on, your brother. <laughs> have to pick out the faults, you know. Just exactly.
1: Just, yeah. Exactly. Whereas my grandfather, uh, Bob Frame, and my uncle, Greg Frame, went to the Soldiers Point Bowling Club and made the uh, person running the bar turn every TV on in the entire <laughs> bowling club to the news. So right. everybody at Soldiers Point Bowling Club on New Year's Day had to watch My Ugly Mug.
0: I recently saw it and it was a good throwaway to you because it was Australian cricket. So of all the people, of all the first thing to say, it was not a bad way to get into it,
1: right? Yeah, absolutely. And it was, it was funny because we... So NBN was based at Mosbri Crescent uh, for 60 years, pretty much 60 years on the dot. It's actually being demolished now because they're building high rise apartments where the footprint of the building was, because what sort of happened is with streamlining and, and, and aggregation and everything. A lot of jobs through the Nine Network have been moved to Sydney or Brisbane. So instead of having a studio crew now, we have automated – there are automated cameras now. Yeah. So they've moved NBN News to a, a, an entire floor of a high-rise building – high-rise of a, <laughs> a building in um, Honeysuckle. And uh, so it takes up an entire floor. But it's gone from, you know, back in the day, probably 30 years ago, there would have been 500 employees at NBN doing any number of things – These days it's probably 50 in the Newcastle office and um, it's all done out of the one building. So the old building is demolished. We actually packed up and left there just over 18 months before I left NBN. So I was there for the final night and I, myself and Jane Goldsmith, did the final broadcast out of Mm. And But when I was cleaning up my desk, I actually found all this stuff that I didn't realise I'd kept. And one of it was three VHS copies of my first three nights on TV
0: oh right
1: <laughs> so that's where that footage that's why it looks all grainy and looks all like you know looks like it's from 1960 not 19, right, 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 2009 yeah. yeah right wow i saw where
0: you're leading up to that stage and you got thrown out to do a story about a war's end fire
1: yeah really close to federal park right federal park yeah so so right off federal park so uh you're heading towards the pool federal parks on your right it was a left-hand turn one of those streets in there that's quite small which yeah would have been very original sort of suburb like would have been you know horse and cart sized streets Mm. so anyway it was i think it was around easter and a house had had a house fire And it was one of those ones where someone's put their fire on. They didn't get it checked before they turned it on. It's combusted and it's blown a hole in the back of the thing. And anyway, it was one of those fibro houses in Walls End that was old. Excuse me. And I turned up with a cameraman, very inexperienced, had no idea what the protocol was. And unfortunately, my cameraman, who was a lovely guy who was a bit older, just didn't really, I don't know, handle himself in the best way. He literally walked past the people crying on the street corner about their house and gave them a big how are we all this morning which made them very very upset and then five minutes later he's gone and uh talked to the fire chief and said do you mind if i go inside and get some shots and he just trudged inside their house with mud on his shoes and uh anyway these people came running over to me and they were all upset and they said um how dare you you're the scum of the earth and all this sort of stuff and i just said i'm really sorry but I don't know, I I want to be a sport reporter and I don't know what I'm doing and blah, blah, blah. (laughs) And uh, unfortunately, even though the girl that I was talking to seemed to be nice and she did calm down, they called Mm. the station uh, after we left and said, you didn't even send a real reporter, you just sent a kid sport reporter. So Uh. I got in a little bit of trouble, but uh, it did make my mind up that uh, I definitely wanted to gear away from news reporting. I just didn't have the stomach for it.
0: Yeah, and like you did it for so long like how difficult was it to be
1: so up to date with the sport like you're doing it every day on the news strangely enough the longer you did it the Mm. easier the job became and I think that's what's been hitting me hard in this new role because nothing comes easy in the new role because I don't know where anything is or who anyone is whereas Mm. In the old role, and I was just telling people this uh, today, just when they asked how am I fitting into the new role, mm. if somebody in the office came to me and said, Mitch, we need a contact for Gulf New South Wales, I just get my phone out and just go, There you go, his name's David, call him, tell him Mitch said to call. Mm. And, and that was the guy for Gulf New South Wales, not just Gulf Newcastle, but you know, the entire state, you know, and but they knew, and the thing is the industry this is the disappointing thing about media i guess going forward is that it's such a transient industry these days that what it used to be good what used to be good about it was that journalists were in place for a long time so that when a media person knew who the journalist was they found it easy to just be like oh we've got a media rock coming up at this venue who's the journal oh mitch at nbn is the sports guy you know call mitch like my contact at Venues New South Wales used to work for the Sydney Swans and then when he moved to Venues New South Wales he just knew that it was still me and so he'd ring me and say Mitch Mitch, we're bringing a motocross event to the you know McDonnell Jones Stadium Um, you know it's on next Thursday and I'd say great thanks mate I'd get off the phone put in my diary know that it was on and 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 it'd get covered you know and you just Mm -hmm. think You know, then I'd get a phone call from the Gulf New South Wales guy and say, Hey, Mitch, one of the kids from Charlestown's winning the New South Wales amateur in Sydney. Do you want some footage? And I'd say, Yeah, mate, send it through. And it was just, it became very second nature. And you just always knew you had content. And as I said before, just like so many of the people became like mates. Like I was doing interviews with Kurt Fernley, the wheelchair athlete, by the end of his career. Kurt and I were going for a coffee to do our interviews because it was just me and him catching up. Like I'd literally just say, Yeah, right occurred on me on beaumont street i'd shout him a coffee we'd have a coffee the cameraman would have a coffee as soon as we'd finish we'd put the camera on we'd do our interview i'd say goodbye you'd use file vision and and that was it you know and it was just a simple things got a lot easier too because you know text messaging if you know an athlete well and they've got your number it was just easy just to text and be like hey mate you got 10 minutes on tuesday to do an interview you know Mm -hmm. and that's what i loved about most sports people in newcastle like there are girls that play wallow uh Rugby for Australia, and they just work down on, you know, Derby Street, but they play rugby for Australia. But if you text them and say, hey, can we do an interview on Tuesday, they say, yeah, yeah, I'm working that day. Come down and we'll do it in the office. And the the disconnect with the people like in the NRL is probably the saddest part of it because when I first started and probably up until 2012, you could build a rapport with players and you could actually establish a rapport. You could have their number. You could text them. You could talk to them. You could ask them a question and, and look after them. And you could be a journalist in the truest sense of having them as a contact. Yes, It's completely been m- managed now so that you're just not allowed to have a relationship with the players because you're just not. They just don't want the publicity getting out there without the mm. club's approval. Whereas... I can be friends with an individual or I can be a contact with an individual, a surfer, like, you know, Ryan Callinan's from Newcastle. He's been top 10 for years. He's just a guy that I know well enough that it's in my phone. If I walk down to Meriwether beach to go for a swim on a day off or, you know, with my kids, I stop and give him a hug and, you know, sit and have a coffee with him. He's not, you know, he's not someone that you sort of think, oh, I'm not allowed to talk to you because you're famous. It's just kind yes. of like, well, he's just a kid from Meriwether who surfs well. you know. Yes. So it was still my favorite thing to know that you could just hang out with these people. There are extraordinary athletes doing extraordinary things. And that was the nicest thing when I, you know, when I finished Rhiannon Ifland's the six time cliff di- Red Bull cliff diving world champion and three time gold medalist high diver. And she sent me the loveliest message and saying, I'm going to miss you and thanks so much for everything you did for me and all that sort of stuff. And yeah, so I think that that connection uh, with the people that I've always dealt with was lovely and but it was mm. just probably it was getting a bit harder towards the end with the more professional teams but in terms mm. of the the information overload it was probably just more that it was full-time you just you know you yeah. you'd roll out of bed you check twitter you check facebook you check your email you check your phone but 20 minutes later you checked everything and you know you were up to date and you could go about your business and then you know you knew what you were doing you knew where this person was racing and who was doing what and you had enough good contacts that would call you and tell you when stuff was on so it actually became incredibly easy but as i said before the volume of stuff became so much more that you're almost picking and choosing what was the most worthy thing whereas go back 10 years you'd have been struggling to find 4 minutes worth of content 7 days a week these yes. days these days you could do 10 minutes worth of content every day just with the availability of footage from people around the world
0: yeah absolutely. Do you think that that's going to become a problem, Mitch, with more sports becoming professional, more money in the game, more sponsorships, like you said? Or is it just maybe because we live in Newcastle that it's not going to become like that, maybe like the US, for example? What's your opinion on that?
1: It's an interesting one. I read an article from one of the journalists in the Sydney Morning Herald probably two or three years ago that really struck a chord with me. He said... He was trying to cover the state of origin in New South Wales, and he couldn't get access to one of the players from Cronulla. And they were trying to hide him because he had some strapping and he'd written something stupid on his thing in support of some guy who'd gone to jail or something. Oh, yes. And this this journalist couldn't get access to him as part of the New South Wales state of origin camp. This same journalist then flew to America, got accreditation, and could talk to LeBron James, Steph Curry, Matthew Dellavedova, Kevin Durant, you name it, because the NBA says, you know what, you're a journalist, you're accredited, you get access to whoever you want, and these players come in and they have to talk to all the journalists, because publicity mm. is, mo- is money and money is king when it comes to these global sports. Right. So I think, it's, I think it's interesting that the U.S. probably – is more extreme in terms of the profile and the publicity and the celebrity of those players but in terms of allowing journalists to maybe get a different angle that's the thing like you go to a press conference these days and it's like everybody sits in the same room talks to the coach and that's you can't get a different angle so you can't go and say okay my story tonight's going to be about how the knights coach wants to institute this policy because everybody knows what the knights coach was saying about that sort of thing Got it. so it for me it's not just losing the access to the players and the access to the coach it's more the personal the one-on-one time where you would have had Mm. the chance to go and sit with them and have a chat to them and you know really try and suss out and that's where I loved those stories like I loved the the more in-depth inside sport magazine three pages worth of story rather than the clickbait and I think it's what I was never I was never into it I was never into the you know gotcha journalism you know oh you said the wrong thing I'm going to use that as my headline you know like I prided myself on if I felt like the angle was going to be bad or the the player was going to be bombarded with silly questions on being able to talk to the media advisor and saying, Hey, this player's probably gonna get, you know, stick for this or this or this, you know, do you wanna give them the heads up? Because I thought, well, I want to talk to that player next week and the week after and the week after, you know. I don't don't want them doing an interview today going, All the media are crap, I don't want everyone to talk to you again, go away. So There's definitely a balance, but again, Newcastle, as you said, it's a one-team town, so a lot of the time you just can't burn people for the sake of one story because that'll be the last story you ever get. That's right,
0: yeah. Mitch, I know you interviewed so many people. Are there like one or two standouts that you just go, just come to mind and go, wow?
1: There were definitely some bad ones that stick out. Oh, bad ones. um, There was a couple of rugby league players who just didn't like the media and you tried to ask them a question and they'd just be like, yep, yep, no. Yeah, no, nah. and that was the end of the oh, interview. Was it Darius Boyd? Yes, it was. <laughs> Very interesting time to be a journalist when the Knights were owned by Nathan Tinkler and Wayne oh, Bennington Town.
0: Absolutely. Steph Gilmore.
1: Yeah. yeah. Go back through it, and and literally, I was just so lucky at times. Like, I did Mark Okolupo's retirement press conference up on the Gold Coast. I did Steph Gilmore's first Big interview when she got sponsored by Rip Curl well before she became the world champion. Just right place, right time. I interviewed Ben Simmons. He came to Newcastle to play. He played a game with his college team when he – no, no, sorry, his high school team. He was finishing high school in the US. He came back to play a combined rep team uh, uh, made up of Newcastle, Lake Macquarie, Central Coast, and Maitland – and Mid-North Coast players, mm. and it, they let two people interview him after the game, and I was one of the two. Actually, in that farewell clip on the news, uh, there's a shot of me standing up shaking his hand. You name it, like Chad Reed, I got to interview a bunch of times. He was like world champion, supercross. Kelly Slater, I interviewed tons of times when I was working up on the Gold Coast. He was uh, there every year, um, in Newcastle as well. Golf, I, in, I interviewed Jason Day... When he mm. won the when he when he got beat in a playoff in two thousand and five for the Queensland PGA title on the Gold Coast by a guy named Scott Gardner, who was Australia's first indigenous golfer to ever make the PGA tour.
0: Wow.
1: And Jason Day got beat in the playoff. And that was like, who's this kid? But yeah. Scott. But I knew Scott Gardner and um yeah, I interviewed Scott. And then yeah, when I got back to Newcastle, it was just it was just incredible the amount of people that were you know when they came through newcastle i guess because newcastle only has the one tv station that you got to interview them even now like knowing Rianne nifland who's the world champion knowing like emily van egmon and claire wheeler are just two girls that came up through the ranks playing junior football in newcastle and now they're two of the biggest stars playing for the matildas you know like yes kurt fernley it's just great to know kurt and you know he only lives two blocks away from where we live in hamilton and um, lauren parker her story is amazing you know Uh, paraplegic and what she's been able to achieve since then and you know just knowing lauren as i do just from being around newcastle christy dawes another paralympian even ryan Callanan and jackson baker are two of the loveliest kids you'll ever meet they're two kids from Meriwether. ryan lost both of his parents to sudden like stroke and you know cancer and that sort of stuff within the space Mm. of 18 months you know the kid wasn't even 30 he lost both of his parents yet he made the world tour, and he's just—he's I, I, probably the one guy that I—I I always celebrate his successes the hardest because I just think I couldn't do it. I couldn't have done it if Mum and Dad had both passed away when Dad passed away. I'd be an mm. absolute wreck. And I was forty something, you know, versus yes. Ryan was in his late twenties, you know, or his mid twenties, you know. And then Jackson Baker, he's another kid from Newcastle. He's on the world surfing tour. He lost his mum to breast cancer four years mm. ago, and I think you know, twenty-three, twenty-four, losing your mum to breast cancer, and you know, and again. Yeah you grew up and people had this perception of surfers of being, you know, lazy weed smoking dropouts. Nothing could be further from the truth. These kids are in the water for 10 hours a day. They're in the gym. They're, they're eating healthy. They're, you know, they're exercising. They're, you know, they're sacrificing to pay to go to this event and get this board and everything. So I think I'm just always, you know, I'm just always impressed, I think, by all these people, and what, what they achieved. And I've been able to, I've held Olympic gold medals. I've held Olympic silver, bronze. I've held, sorry, Com Games gold, silver, and bronze. I've held, you know, the Americas Cup, the Sale GP title, the Hyundai A League trophy, the NRL Grand Final trophy, mm. um, the Melbourne Cup trophy. Like, like, yeah, it's just, it's, Incredible. it's just crazy to go back and yeah. think about all that sort of stuff. Yeah, bizarre. As I said, I was just a little kid from Qatar who didn't have a hell of a lot of confidence who somehow ended up in one of the highest profile jobs in northern New South Wales.
0: There you go, absolutely. So what is the, what's the future the future? have achieved?
1: Mate, it's uh, probably a bit out of left field, but to be honest, I would actually, as I was saying before, film sort of became my first love and a, a giant percentage of what I did moving on to this job was to try and spend more time with the kids and mm-hmm. and my wife and the kids or my little family. Yes, doing the new job, being home, having dinner with the kids, they're in bed at seven thirty eight o'clock. It gives mm. me the chance to do some other things. So, I don't know whether it ever comes off or not. I'd love to be able to do some things. And writing is uh, one of the things I'd love to do, whether it be a book or whether That's it be great. yes whether it be uh, film scripts. Um, Mm. As you know, we we have a mutual friend uh, in Yassa who works works for Disney and um, being involved in the industry, I I like to pick his brain and um,
0: Mm.
1: I'm a member of the Newcastle Film Society and I've been lucky enough to meet a lot of people in the industry, um, some filmmakers, some producers, some directors, some writers and if I ever, you know, get off my butt and actually finally do it and commit to it. I'd really love to be able to put some of my ideas onto paper. Yeah. I think the theme for me is, um, you know, work is work. I'll work to live. I'll spend time with the family. Sport becomes something from now on that just becomes, you know, a hobby. I get to play it or watch it. I don't have to be so invested that I have to live and breathe it. And then movies just become my passion because, I love watching them. I love reading about them. I love behind the scenes stuff. I love trying to write them and things like that. So to be honest, um, I'm hoping that within the next couple of years that I would love to be able to put something together, you know, that would be the the theme. My wife is just pretty much starting out on her career as a boss in medicine. Um, she's- oh. Uh,
0: oh, that's amazing. I
1: wanna support her, I guess, in her uh, journey now in terms of where she's going to go in the next five or 10 years in terms of being a boss. and But yeah, I mean, yeah, in a nutshell, I would love to one day be known as Mitchell Hughes, who wrote that famous movie or that famous book, not just Mitchell Hughes in news.
0: I think the whole book would be amazing. Social media, uh, where can people find you online? to catch up with
1: you so i haven't been doing a lot of that because obviously i went from being a journalist and a lot of my stuff was (laughs) was journalist based so uh right i I had i think i've changed my twitter handle because i kind of had to because i think it was mitch hughes nbn NBN. (laughs) Uh, i think think it's now mitch underscore j underscore hughes
0: what's the best piece of advice you've ever been getting mitch
1: my dad always used to say that it was easier to forget about something and let it go than it was to dwell on it and let it ruin your life and i think it was a really good attitude because yeah it sort of it had that idea of like there's no point burning bridges or you know trying to you know remember why you hate somebody or why you hate a situation or why holding a grudge because you're spending so much energy on something that the other person may never even realize you were spending energy on so exactly to me dad was always about. You know, just moving forward and and you know mm. trying to move on and living, not living in the past, I guess. Which is, uh,
0: yes, absolutely. And what advice would you give to someone who
1: wants to go into your field, like in the in the media? I would say make sure you're doing it for the very right reasons. Uh, right. I meet a I meet a lot of people. I met a lot of people, especially who getting into journalism felt like a side door into being on television and broadcast journalism is an awesome outlet but if the only reason you want to do it is to be a TV presenter you miss the boat because there's so few jobs for TV presenters in journalism these days you've probably got a limited amount in sydney melbourne brisbane perth adelaide and all the other jobs are gone you know you know ah. most of northern queensland used to do their own thing maybe out of cairns maybe out of rocky maybe out of townsville mm. now it's either broadcast out of the sunshine coast or out of brisbane back up to you know the sunshine coast so
0: mm-hmm.
1: there's a limited number and you're just going to find that your passion just isn't there to do the job you're not going to persevere long enough get into one of those roles because you're not going to enjoy it enough and you're not going to want to do it it's a great profession but a be prepared to suffer through crap money for a while Mm. uh, because it doesn't pay a lot Um, it will pay a lot if you get to the top but it's a slow burn to get to the top and if you want to get on tv go and try acting because trust me being a journalist and trying to become a news anchor is is very very difficult and the Mm. jobs are very limited and you won't last until you get to the top because those jobs are hard to come by yes absolutely yes i i could imagine
0: now to finish off uh, i just asked some really quick questions just to get outside of what we've been talking about you just give me your top two or three answers all right you ready mitch ready music so who are your top two or three favorite uh, musicians or artists
1: I was a kid of the 90s, so I was obsessed with the early stuff of like the Chili Peppers, Soundgarden, Stone Temple Pilots, Nirvana, all that sort of stuff. To be honest, in terms of artists, I love Tame and Parler at the moment. I love Billie Eilish.
0: Your three favourite books?
1: 1984, only book I was ever reading where I literally threw the book away when I got to a certain point in the book because it just shocked me so much. There's a book called The Andron Report. Last question who is your greatest inspiration/hero slash hero and why I'm not going to mention one person I'll mention two and this sounds really really sappy okay. but it's mum and da- it's mum and dad and it's mum and dad because dad and mum had good money they were cruising they were good they knew what they were doing and then when the recession hit in the 80s they bought a business about 2 years before the business Faltered because of the recession. They bought a delicatessen at a time when nobody had any money to spend, so no one's going out to buy salamis and you know their own olive oil, like you know press their own olive oil and all that sort of stuff. So unfortunately, that business went really bad. <clears throat> but during that period, Dad would take second jobs. He would work for the guy next door. Um, you know, we would sacrifice the amount of times Dad did stuff that I just didn't realize some of it illegal. <laughs> which I won't say here but like literally to make ends meet in the 1980s my mum and dad just did the most incredible things and my favourite sort of story was Seal Rocks Caravan Park was um, two and a half three hours away from our house in Newcastle and it was this very rustic very raw very unchecked sort of caravan park and in the 80s and 90s and Dad used to drive up there a week before we'd go on holidays for Easter, park the caravan in the best spot, drive home, not, not pay, come back to our house. We'd go back up there the weekend after. We'd stay for two weeks. And then at the end of the holiday, Dad would go to the counter to go and pay. And the guy would say, how long did you stay for, Brian? he'd say, oh, just a week, mate. And he'd pay for a week and we'd leave. <laughs> because we couldn't afford yeah. Yeah. to stay for three weeks. But Dad yeah, would oh, somehow wow. find a way to stay for three and then you know dad worked a second job fixing electrical appliances and mm. you know that then he gave up playing golf because he couldn't afford the fees to go and join the the country club you know and mum went back to work earlier than she thought she would and um he just took crappy jobs and he just did what he could but you know they found a way to make ends meet but i didn't know any of that until yeah. i was 20 and my mum was going nuts one you when i was 20 buying christmas decorations and i'm like Mum, what are you doing i'm 20 bros 17 yeah we don't care about christmas decorations what are you putting reindeers on the front of the house for and making a tree the size of the house and she's like because i can and i'm like what do you mean she goes we can afford it and i was like what do you mean we can afford she goes mitch did you never wonder why you you wore hand-me-downs throughout the 80s all your clothes were your cousin's clothes and i'm like no nope, i just thought that's what everyone did you know yeah. did you never wonder why your soccer balls were you know Ones that were left and lost and found at the club, or your boots were secondhand, or I'm like, I just thought that's what everyone did. And I'm like, Mum and Dad found a way to make ends meet, but they didn't put that burden back onto us and didn't ever say to us, You know, you never heard that sort of thing. Like later in life, when we were old enough and when we didn't <coughs> care, Dad would say, It costs $250,000 to raise a kid, you owe me $250,000. <laughs> But he had a sense of humor, your dad. He very much did, <laughs> but they, they never put the burden back onto us. And we lived in this awesome house that we didn't realize mum and dad almost lost, you know, because of the recession. Um, you know, it had rumpus rooms, it had a massive yard and all this sort of stuff. And, you know, we had holidays all the time because mum would get a holiday through my nan to the Gold Coast through a timeshare. And then somehow they found money to get us to Port Macquarie and again, I grew up thinking that I had the best life in the world. And then when I turned 22 and moved to England, I kind of went, wow, mum and dad never got to do anything like this. You know, dad, yeah. went, to, dad went to New Zealand once, Vanuatu once, and mum went to Hong Kong, I think. And that was it, you know, and most of that was paid for by my grandparents on both sides. So, yeah, mum and dad just worked so hard to give us a life that we, you know, deserved. Mum even started putting money away for me when they were, when I was about eight to go to university. I didn't know if I wanted to go to university. I was the first person in both sides of my family's ever, history, timeline of the families as far back to go to university.
0: Mm, that's incredible.
1: But yeah, mum's awesome and she's still here and it's great to still have her. And
0: that's, I think that's a great way to finish it off, Mitch. You've had a great career so far. Amazing life, good luck with the rest of your career, your young little family. Represent Newcastle to the fullest, as I'm sure you will. And when I come back, let's definitely catch up and have a beard.
1: Absolutely, sounds great. Hi, I'm Tony Fair, founder of Victorian Grooming Company. Is your beard feeling dry or the skin underneath itchy? Maybe you'd rather soften and tame your beard instead. Our classic collection of beard oils, balms and soaps will leave your beard looking, feeling and smelling
0: amazing. And if you prefer shaving, our pre-shave oils and shave soaps will give you a smooth and razor burn free shave. Handmade Nemington with natural ingredients, visit victoriangrooming.com.